0: The Devils will host their fourth annual New Jersey Devils Blood Drive, presented by RWJ Barnabas Health, on Saturday, November 21st at Prudential Center. The event will take place from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and those who donate will receive a t-shirt. For more information and to register, visit NewJerseyDevils.com slash blood drive. everybody. Matt Lachlan, along with Amanda Stein. You know what time it is, Amanda. It's time for another edition of Speak of the Devils podcast. Exactly. And I'm very excited about today's guest because if you wanted an honest answer, Bobby Holik gave you an honest answer. But beyond that, he gave you an honest effort and is a two-time Stanley Cup champion as a member of the Devils.
1: I got to tell you that I get quite jealous when we have these alumni on because you've obviously been a part of the franchise and covering the franchise far longer than I have. So when we have these alumni on, you have so many common stories and you can really talk about being there for certain moments. But I learned so much more than I ever thought I could um when we have these conversations and i'm looking forward to bobby because my understanding is is he is thoughtful he is articulate and he was just one of the hardest working guys you can ever possibly see play in the nhl so i'm looking forward to this but also jealous when you're able to reminisce and i'm just sitting here nodding my head like oh yeah oh.
0: Well, my, my promise then to you is we'll do a little bit of both, right? We'll do <laughs> okay. a little reminiscing, which I know the fans want to hear about, but also we'll find out what he's up to today and get his thoughts on a bunch of different subjects because he's very well read. He's an interesting man. He's got a worldly view, and it, it'll be a lot of fun. I, I will point out that there are trades that go down in history. And in Devil's History, the trade in which Bobby Holik was acquired from the Hartford Whalers goes down as one of the best in franchise history. Uh, Not only did Bobby come over, and as we mentioned, a part of two Stanley Cup championship teams, but they also acquired a draft pick that Lou Lamorello turned into, and David Conte and and the rest of the staff, turned into Jay Pandolfo. I did not know that. Yeah, great penalty killer and also a multiple champion. And so when you think about who came over in a deal in which Eric Weinrich, who's with the Devils today, uh, and Sean Burke, They went to Hartford. The return was pretty impressive. And uh, the Devils, as they say, uh, certainly benefited from that. And the rest is history. Well, why waste any more time? Let's bring in our guest who joins us from his home in Wyoming as we say hello to Bobby. So, Bobby, it's so good to spend some time with you. Why don't you catch up the Devils fans with what's going on in your life and what you're doing to stay busy these days?
2: Well, obviously the uh, circumstances are different than uh, they've been last many, many years. So um, there's, as far as organized hockey has been, there's not existed since you know, early March or last winter, basically. So I try to keep myself busy and I have kept myself busy. And it was just, a, um, to be honest with you, after 30 years of hustle, it was a nice break, not having to travel and do other things. But I found a way... And we found a way as a family to to stay productive, and uh, we all pursue continue to pursue our passions. And so I've I found a way to mentor young men here in Wyoming since uh, we got back in the early or mid spring, and uh, it's been wonderful. And all I'm do all I'm trying to do is make a difference. And sometimes it's through hockey, but last six months cannot be through hockey. So I'm, I'm finding a different way.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the mentorship program?
2: Uh, what it entails? Uh, it's not necessarily a program. It's just taking interest in young men who have potential, and and I don't want them to be known for their potential. I want them to be known for what what they what they actually do in life. And it's it's a variety. It's, it's, it's some athletes, some uh, first responders, some just young men, uh, like a variety of them. It just it's more of a coincidental that I. have I come across them in, in life through friends or through our activities as a family. And, um, I love mentoring. I love, I don't like to complain about, about the youth, about the people who are, you know, young people, like many, uh, I, I'm actually a few years back, I decided that I am not going to say anything bad about it unless I do something about it. So as I said, it was hockey that gave me the, was the vehicle to mentor and teach. Um, that wasn 't happening I, I found a different way, and I do it through uh, mostly shooting sports like sporting plays, trap, skied, some target shooting, and uh, because I find it that you you're taking responsibility to another level and it 's good for young men it 's it's, it's good for them to have rules uh, very strict rules, very strong boundaries and help them help them find their way within those boundaries and uh, it's been it 's been a great summer i uh, Sometimes I get a text or or a call or or just a little video, and it really, really makes my heart uh, very happy because not necessarily I'm looking for a reward, but I feel like I do not have the right to complain unless I do something about it. And uh, I'm a doer, so I'm doing something about it. Do they
1: know you as Bobby Holik, the hockey player, before you start? You know, when when you first meet these people? Or are you just Bobby Holik?
2: Um, I'm trying to be Bobby Holik, the person, the husband, father, the friend. Because being a hockey player, looking back, reflecting, is um, what you do for a living is almost easy. To To be good at hockey, radio, or any media, broadcasting, it's to me, that's easy part. Being a good human being for for res, for the for your life's duration is challenge, because there's good times, there's bad times, a lot of time. You know, most life is a grind. People don't know that. Young people don't know that because they've been they've been fortunate to live in this country for the last 20, 30 years, and uh, the reality is life is a grind. It's great when you embrace the struggle, embrace the overcome the obstacles that's what I'm trying to teach them that if you want to be have a good time have a enjoy life day to day don't wait for the gold medal or the championship so to speak you know embrace whatever's challenging you that day and um, again it's it's been a great summer because I didn't have to travel for it and just doing it locally and a lot of people would say you should do it on the internet you should do it in a big group I said no I want to do it one person at a time and and that's You know, it's a lot more effort, a lot less reward. But uh, that's, I guess, that's my middle name.
0: (laughs) Effort was always part of your regime. (laughs) There's no question about that. Um, And so, congratulations on that. And that has to be obviously, it's very rewarding. And and it's it's good that you're not sitting on your laurels. Although I think anyone who Saw Bobby Hulik play, knows Bobby Hulik realizes you're not going to rest at any time. You're going to keep pushing forward. But I am going to talk a little bit. We have to, you know, rewind the clock a little bit and talk about hockey. You were drafted by the Hartford Whalers. Uh, Kids, ask your grandparents about that team. In 1989, uh, now the Carolina Hurricanes. You were the 10th overall pick. And I'm wondering, uh, because we get different answers from players who came across the ocean to North America around that time, what it was like for you uh, to leave uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, Czech Republic now, and come to America?
2: It was absolutely phenomenal opportunity. That's all it was. You know, I always uh, go back to what I was talking about earlier. It's not about what you get, but as long as you get the opportunities. What you do with the opportunities is another story. So I I got an opportunity, I tell, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like an old, Old man or old-fashioned immigrant, but I literally landed at Boston Logan International Airport with a pair of skates and a bad polyester suit. That's all I had with me. <laughs> and uh, but I had a work ethic and I had skills and discipline, and I was determined to succeed. And I got picked up by people from Hartford and brought there, and uh, it was awesome because I was 19 years old. And I think my parents, I I have to tell to give my parents a lot of credit because they prepared me for not knowing they were pre, they prepared me extremely well not knowing what they were preparing me for so i i was from day one i never had a, a day or moment where i was looking back and longing for the time of past because i was like i'm a you know i said earlier <laughs> i'm gonna do it and people there was there was doubters not not I but there were doubters and i said you know what they're going to try to stop me. And at the time, it was just the tail end of the Cold War. And there was a lot of dissent towards the Eastern Europeans. Uh, you know, people say, oh, it was tough for me. I'm like, you don't understand. People called me effing communist not knowing that my dad was one of the most staunch anti-communists in the, in the history of Czechoslovakia. So uh, the prejudice and that was part of it, but I looked at it as a challenge. And then, again, that's what I teach the, the young men today. When people doubt you, they disrespect you for what, whatever it is, I took it as a challenge to prove, prove them wrong. And my motto was, I'm just gonna be too good to be denied. And that's, so go back to the original question. It was awesome, great opportunity. And I just, as I landed on Boston Airport, I never looked back, and uh, the rest is history—or well, it's a pretty good story.
1: Who were the first people in hockey when you landed that you met?
2: Well, you know, for a hockey player, where do you come from? Eastern Europe, on uh, and to a brand new country, to a brand new continent, to a brand new world, literally, because I, the, communism ended about seven, eight months prior to that. So I, we really didn't experience any democracy yet. It was just a transition. So I went from the Eastern Europe, you know, post, immediately post-communism, into uh, most the greatest country in the world because of the opportunities. And uh, what it was it like? No difference. I was playing hockey, and I was going to do that the best I could. You know, at nineteen, you have nothing else in your mind but play hockey and succeed. So that's like when players get traded. It's easy. It's hard for the family. They have to find a new life, new home. So. Coming from Eastern Europe or anywhere else and playing hockey was actually not that not as hard as people would think the, the outside world or the real life. It was a little more challenging, but again, there was not a challenge that I didn't meet.
0: Who were some of your mentors then early on on the hockey side in that organization to kind of help you get acclimated both to North America, to the United States, but also to the National Hockey League?
2: Uh, two guys come to mind immediately. It's Patrick Rubik and Ron Francis. It was, uh, I think those guys uh, are well-known in the in the hockey world. Both were successful, but again, they were not just great players. They were great guys and great mentors for somebody like me. There was, and I'm not sure if you guys have heard me say that, but there was a lot of players, teammates, who didn't wish me well because it was immediately post-breakup of communism. So, there was a lot of guys with prejudice and jealousy because I was a first rounder coming from Eastern Europe and all that. And I must say, those two guys stand out as awesome guys. They were just great to me. Some of the other ones, not so. And I will not, I will mention it, but I will not mention their names because that happened for first few years. And I always remember the guys who helped me. And as I said, no matter how hard I worked, I couldn't do it on my own. And Patrick B, Ron Francis were the first ones in Hartford. And then coming to New Jersey, there was more, more you know, Scotty Stevens. I'll never forget the day Scotty Stevens welcomed me in a South Mountain practice ring uh, to the Devils family. And then Bruce Driver, Kenny Danico, and, and just the whole organization from Dr. McMullen through Lou. It was, it was a huge, huge part of our life while we were there.
0: What was it like when you got traded to the Devils? And by the way, what you said about, I I think people need to go back and understand history uh, to kind of understand where somebody is coming from. Uh, Go back even, you know, going back to when the Soviet Union started to play Canadian teams and, and that whole culture clash and, you know, what was done to players who came over finally, some, you know, some were sneaking across borders. Eventually they were able to come freely. People should read the history to understand a little bit what, about what Bobby is talking about. It seems like that should be something that was 100 years ago. It was oh, a lot more- sorry
2: to interrupt you, but most recent example is uh, in- induction into a Hall of Fame, Václav Nedomansky last fall. I've, I've. Uh, David Conte called me two, three years ago about Václav Nedomansky and thought what I thought of him, uh, wanted to know what I thought of him. And uh, we talked continually throughout the process. And I had to give credit to David Conte, who made tremendous effort to, to show the world what Mr. Nermansky did. And on my personal level, he showed, just like Peter Stastny almost 10 years later or eight years later, they opened the door for us. It was not easy for us by any means, but it was much easier than it was for Peter or Vatslav in the late seventies, uh, for Nenamansky in the early to mid seventies, for Peter Stastny in the early to mid eighties. So these guys should get far more credit than they ever did. Not not only for their hockey play, on ice productivity and their performance, but the type of people they were, the type of leaders, and the way they blazed the trail for guys like myself, Jeremy Jager, and uh, you know even Patrick and. Anybody else who came from the small towns of Czech Republic to play hockey or Czechoslovakia at the time, uh, I would like to, if, when, you said, when you're talking about learning history, learn about what Václav Nedimonsky or Peter Stastny and his brothers had to do to succeed here. Then you're gonna kind of realize or understand more what I'm talking about when we did face some prejudice, some, some animosity towards us, and he, but it was a lot less than those two guys.
0: Chico Resh raves about Nedomansky. They, they, uh, he, they were contemporaries, and boy, he, he just raves about what kind of a player he was.
2: And he was uh, when he was in Czechoslovakia. He was actually my my dad's best friend. So I've heard the story about Nedomansky and used him as a role model throughout my life. So we can go way, way deep into this, but I'm <laughs> sure you have other questions.
0: Well, I know the Devils fans. I would love to explore that history, and we will do that perhaps at another time. But I know Devils fans want to kind of hear us turn the. Discussion a little bit devil's way. So, what was it like when you got traded? Uh, You know, you said you were welcomed, but the team that drafted you just a few years ago says, "You know what? We're moving you to another team." And the Devils hadn't quite moved to the higher echelon of the NHL at that point.
2: The the way I looked at it is, the team that trades for you always wants you more than the team that traded you. No matter how good of a player, no matter what you've done, it's that's the way it is. And as a player being wanted means you're gonna get opportunities. And even, yeah, you're right, Devils of 92 were not the Devils of 90, 95 or not 2000 or whatever, but but that's okay. It was a move in the right direction. And uh, I got to, you know, I was traded, uh, we were traveling at the time, I think with my wife, we just got married and uh, we, we just, Luke called, he said, "You know, can you come down?" I said, "Yeah." When we get back, where from wherever we were, as soon as we got to New Jersey, we got back to Connecticut. We went to New Jersey, and I met Lou and Marshall Johnson, whose long-time friend, my dad's friend. Uh, again, hockey world is very small, but you know, I got to you know when I met Lou, not knowing that it was going to be the greatest job, the greatest boss that I'll ever ever have other than my wife, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was, I remember that day, we met somewhere in Seacaucus somewhere. They, took, they gave us a tour and uh, we were excited. We were young and ready to take on the world. And my wife had to switch schools, you know, at the time, and I had to switch teams, but we all had goals to pursue. And, and it seemed like it was lining up. When you're young, you have all this energy, Adventure is good. I mean, you know, challenges, chances. You take chances better than than 20 years later.
1: What were your first impressions of Lou? You know, you say he was one of the greatest bosses you ever had other than your wife. He wasn't
2: one of the greatest. He was the best boss I ever had. So, uh, impressions. I mean... He 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 broke us in slowly. So <laughs> I was gonna know him and but again it's they were welcoming and you know, as I said, coming to the locker room eventually before the camp and all that stuff. It was such an easy transition, at least for me. Uh the biggest difference was, you know, Connecticut where where we lived and played was more like a country club lifestyle because there was a lot some small towns, a lot of lot of kind of, uh, not rural, but and then you get to New North Jersey and it's pretty, pretty busy. So it was a little more of a culture adjustment than uh, it was a hockey and uh, again, opportunities came and I was just happy to be playing in a, in a place where they were maybe a little more serious about the game.
0: When did you get put together with uh, Randy McKay and Mike Peluso to form the Crash Line, which... Along with the A-line, the two best lines in Devil's history, different roles. Although you guys could score, those guys wouldn't fight, the A-line. You guys would do a little of the physical work. But uh, the name spoke for itself. When the crash line was out there, you knew something big was going to happen. What were the circumstances? Do you remember how that that get
2: Before I get to the history of how it happened, I'm going to tell you one thing. There's only one line In Devil's History, that had a real name. Okay, the A A line or eighteen, whatever. That that was just an afterthought. But second, crash line. If we were in a playoff series, matched up against the quote unquote A line, they would be begging us to let up. They would be asking us to stop because. They were awesome hockey players, but they couldn't take what Crashline brought. <laughs>
0: well, you gave it out in practice to them. I know that. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. So that, that, that's all. Trust that. Now, <laughs> just that um, I came in 92, 93 with Herb Brooks. Then 93, Jacques Lemaire became a coach. And a couple months, not even a couple months, I was still playing. They were rotating me through wings and, and some center and all that. And Jacques Lemaire was like, you know what? He didn't ever tell me, but he said, you're playing center. Mike Beluso playing left wing and Randy, Randy, you're playing right wing. And I'm like, all I ever thought about is like finally somebody who knows the game enough because I've been a lifelong center and it took me a long time to get to that position. And, and again, great opportunity, uh, great, great teammates, great line mates. And we, uh, we made an impact on the game in the mid nineties, that's for sure. And, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, we're not to remember just for, uh, We did score some big goals, we made some big plays, but we we cherished the the opportunities to change momentum or hold on to the momentum that we had and uh, it, it it was awesome to help the team win or succeed in many different ways.
1: Do you remember the first time you heard the nickname, the crash
2: line, and what your first impressions were? No, I didn't. I do not. I think it just took on. I may. Mean, I don't know. What was that? Mike Emmerich's? Uh, yeah, event? that
0: was Doc. Yeah.
2: So when you hear him on TV now, you still, you know, that voice, but uh, not sure when it happened the first time, but it became a little bit of a legend. Obviously, the two playoff runs we had culminating with the Cup in 95. And uh, so... Again, it was, uh, you go somewhere now and people don't remember nothing else but the crash line. And uh, I'm not saying that, I'm not pumping my own tires, but playing on the crash line, you don't fully realize how much of an impact we, not only on the ice, but culturally with the team, with the identity we had. And uh, again, it was, it was fun. You know, you work hard, you pay the price, you sacrifice, you bleed, you sweat, you hurt. And eventually you look back and you're like, wow, that was so much fun.
0: Well, you are right. That line was out there when you had to blunt the momentum of the other team. But also when the Devils would score a goal, you'd be put back out there because not so much Mike, with all due respect, but Randy could score the key goal and you could score a big goal. By the way, people may not realize there are only three Devils who have scored more than 200 goals while playing in a Devil sweater. John McClain, Patrick Elias, and our guest, Bobby Holik, who has 202 goals scored while playing for the Devil. So you guys could do it all. It was just a phenomenal time. And you guys could change, you could change a game with just one shift. It was just so much fun one to be a part of.
2: One more game situation that you didn't mention. We are in, I believe it was American Airlines Arena in the old building that Florida Panthers used to play. And we are goal, up goal or two, maybe goal and minute and a half left, maybe a little more. <laughs> and Jack puts us out there because Florida pulls the goalie. So they have a six players. We have five. And we're not used to playing minute and a half shifts. We were used to 30, 35 seconds hard, you know, put them on their heels, get off and let somebody else do, do their thing. And we are out there and we are forechecking so well. I, I, I remember that because at the end of that shift, at the end of the game, we were playing with, you know, against Empty Netter, or against six players, and we kept them pinned in their own end because our forecheck was so relentless. But I'm, it was a long shift we didn't we were not ready to play minute minute twenty, but you know what you you have somebody pin in their own end and uh they have they pull the goalie and they, we you know we just kind of they, they don't have a chance to score they don't have an opportunity to score because they're in their own end. so that was our one of uh, another game situation that that we can we can talk about
0: Bobby, you have the nickname I'm talking about. Crash Line is a line's nickname. Your nickname was Herf. Uh, I read a quote where Randy McKay said, of course it's Herf. It's the Hereford cattle. I've, that man eats more than a, a, a cow does. Have you, you ever seen his meal? But also it was for your size. Who, who laid that one on you? Herf.
2: Ted Shook, the the, the trainer, the head trainer in... Uh, Teddy. Teddy Shook. Yeah. He, he laid it on. He put it out there. It stuck like nothing else. Went back... Well, oh, when we saw you guys in January, February at the cup reunion and you know the old old school guys, the old guys they remember it very well. that's the first thing they call me, but yeah, it was a, it was a male uh male cow, you know uh whatever we call it earth Herf, yeah, herford and Guess <laughs> what our first house we bought in in Wyoming, not knowing it was on Hereford Drive
0: oh, come so on, really
2: three. that's crazy. <laughs>
0: Who would have thought? That's unbelievable. Well, uh, again, a nickname that's a t- Teddy Shook was a longtime yes. Devils trainer, and uh, you know he came up with a few nicknames. Uh, that's for sure. When you guys get together, as you did most recently to uh, celebrate a championship, what do you talk about?
2: Oh, a lot of guys like Scott Gomez. He's got a lot of stories from the past. You know, most of us have moved on, and so we have to be sharing our experiences. What are we doing now? Or what? How are how the families? How the kids? Kids who are not kids anymore, they're grown adults. But there's you guys who just go back to the same old stories. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to like, okay, you know, you need to get a life because you, there's talk about the same. No, it's good to hear the old stories. But as I said, a lot of guys have children who are full grown and they are doing their things. And again, being a great hockey player is, was good and fun, but, but having, having a good family and, and having kids who do well and are, are healthy, that's far more fun. So now when some time goes by, that's most of, the, most of the time you do catching up on that stuff.
1: I mean, you talk about that reunion that we had this past year. I mean, how much fun was that just to have all the guys together, you know, let alone the conversations you guys were having, but just to be reunited in front of the Prudential Centre crowd
2: as well? I had I have a as always I've always had a little different perspective. So my perspective is it was actually a lot more fun because the most of the guys are more mature. At the time when <laughs> those championships, it was kind of I felt like I was one of the more mature players. Matt, you might wanna you know No,
0: absolutely. You w- without question. I mean your attention to detail, your approach to each game, it was it it was professional in the true sense of the word. You weren't going to be deterred. I think anyone listening to this podcast, uh, some of the things you said earlier would understand, okay, I, I think I know how he approached things each day. Yeah. day.
2: So I, I, even off the ice, I felt like I was far more mature than my peers. And at the time, it was not as much... Uh, as much fun as, as it could have been for me. But 20 years later, now these guys finally grow up. And actually, not only um, the reunion, but we had Jason Arnon and his family visiting Wyoming this past summer. And we had such a good time together because, you know, everybody's maturing, including myself. Um, I might be a little more tolerant than I was at the time. <laughs> and it's it's uh, these reunions uh, reunions are extremely fun for me because you're talking to more mature men, and including myself, as I said, I matured in different ways. So um, you can have a conversation, and we talk about things not only hockey because we can't play it anymore. You know, we try to teach it, we try to pass on the experiences. Not everybody's uh, has those opportunities, but there's other things in life. But it, when you when you step on the ice and during the ceremony, and you hear the cheers, when it is, it brings to some extent the memories. Makes it a little fresher because uh, watching the games now, when you don't have the background, it's not like you know what people are saying or yelling. But playing hockey has comes with certain noise, and when uh, you walk that carpet, like most recent reunion, that you hear that noise, and that you associate that with that intensity of the games, with that sacrifice, with that you know, doing it for each other with that long grind of a season. So uh, there's two parts of it. As I said, the personal one and then the hockey one. And uh, they both, you know, usually it happens over the weekend and those things happen at the same time.
1: Okay, Um, I want to go back to, sorry, Maddie, I want to go back to something that Bobby said there. Um, You're more tolerant now is what you said. So what were the things that you struggled to tolerate in years past when it comes to your teammates? (laughs)
2: everything everything <laughs> i uh it was not an act. I was truly focused intense to that to that level, uh and you know looking back that i've talked to my teammates over the last few years, sometimes they don 't realize whether it's the devil 's teammates or teammates from other teams they don't they cannot believe my quote unquote evolution because I was. I, my intensity level is definitely a lot lower, and my, my kind of focus is on other things. And as I said, pretty much everything I was very rigid about. And, but I felt that, that that kind of a frame of mind would make me a better hockey player, and I thought that it did. But when the game's over, you gotta, you got you to gotta move on.
0: Amanda, you didn't have the pleasure of watching some of those teams play and covering the personalities. But think about it. You've met some of them now and you've heard some of the stories. So on that 95 team, you have Bobby, you've got Pep, you've got Scotty Stevens. You got Dano, you got Randy McKay. These are dominant personalities. Now you go to 2000, here comes a young John Madden backed from no one. Here comes Scotty Gomez who breezes through and tells everyone (laughs) what he thinks of the world and his opinion is the best. It is a different environment now. If you wanted an honest quote, there were about four different places you'd go into a devil's dressing room to get it. Bobby's was one, Mad Dog's was eventually another one. Uh, Scotty Stevens would be honest, quieter, it was great. We didn't get any of that. Give a hundred and ten percent. We're all in this together. It was just, uh, and somehow it all worked, Bobby. Everything worked. The talent worked. The personalities worked. It just was. It was a great I, period of time.
2: You, you know, I, I have a lot of time to analyze. I, I'm very analytical. I, I work on my by myself a lot, so I have the time to think about it and I think about just about everything under the under the sky. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Two, two things. I definitely miss. Coaches and general managers today, they believe that if they get a vanilla personality, it's going to be better, easier to control these players. But they don't realize with bigger risk, with more, let's call it spicy personality, there's a bigger reward if you can channel it in a team goal. And you mentioned Mad Dog, you mentioned Scotty, Kenny, uh, Pep. I I use the same guys as an example. I said, we had these incredible strong personalities. But when the practice started or the puck was dropped, their intent was to make the team better. And we go back to Lou. You have to give him credit. He didn't pick players according to their skills. He picked players according to their character or their personalities, knowing that if he can channel Claude Lemieux's or Scottie Stevens' personality to make the team better, he's going to have a championship team. But general managers and coaches today are – not necessarily scared, but they don't want to put in the work. They don't want to work with that tremendous upside. they rather take somebody. That's my experience from watching the game or reading about it or, you know, continue to follow it. It's the same thing in high school. It's the same thing in PVs. Coaches favor players who are sheep, so to speak. But there's an upside to these great talents, the great characters. But it's, it's work. And again, I never shied from work. So when I deal with young men, whether it's away from hockey or in hockey, and I see that upsides there, I work relentlessly to to not only bring it out but also make them understand that their sometimes their their weaknesses or negative, negative things could be their strength if they channel it the right way, if they can challenge themselves. And again. I don't want to go in a direction of that, but that that you know, Matt, that's who I am. That's how I approach things, so I don't want to just give you the cliche and again,
0: never got it from Bobby. never got a cliche <laughs> from Bobby, really.
2: Two things: credit to Lou, knowing that there's upside in these somewhat difficult personalities, but but he knew how to how to reach them, and also the guys seeing the light and giving everything they had. To the T. that's why we had the success we because we had a and you're right you you know in, it was different 95 and different in 2000 but those guys came in and they put the jersey on and i'm going to give you a cliche and i put the front of the jersey first
0: not it's about the logo <laughs> the first nothing in the back yeah 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 <laughs>
2: Um,
1: I'm wondering because you know listening to you talk and just I, I'm really quite in awe about the message that you're you're giving out and articulating as someone who you know I don't know you and I know of you and and having played for the team but when you win your first cup how do you enjoy that because I can tell you're very serious and maybe were even more so back then but. What did that moment mean? And was there a type of release? I mean, it's something you had worked so long for, but did you allow yourself to enjoy it?
2: Um, I enjoyed it in a sense of being able to reflect that all that hard work and sacrifice you make does bring reward. But I didn't enjoy it in the most common way, like like other people would think. Uh, I just, yes, I, I was probably a little more serious Then far more serious than, and I was far more serious than most people. Uh, But I came from a different. uh, I didn't care. I didn't go and play and succeed because that's what we do. You know, my dad played hockey, my uncle, and they sacrificed tremendously where they where they were born, raised, and played hockey. And and my grandparents. I, I to this day, I tell young people, it's not this good because it just happened. It's this good because other people sacrificed. So I, my dad passed away about five years ago, and how do I honor him? I, I can't have him back, but I honor, honor him to be the best I can be every single day, no matter what I do. And it was, that was in hockey too. He was, you know, he was still alive then, but it was just like, this is what I'm supposed to do because my parents, my family, my wife were supporting me. They gave me all these opportunities. Winning a championship is the least I can do for them. So the next, you know, a few days later go by, you go back to work and you're trying to do it again. You might never do it again, but the intent has to be there. And that's how I live my life. You know, Where it was was then, it was through hockey. Today, it's through other things.
0: What was the difference between the 95 Cup and the 2000 Cup? What do you take out of each? And then I'm going to ask you to follow up with, what happened in between, not making the playoffs in 96 and just not really living up to what everyone thought the Devils could do. So first off, the difference between the two and what you think happened in those years in between.
2: 95 was the best team that I've ever been on. Team as far as team, as far as connection with everybody, playing for each other the way at the level we did, because we were not that talented or we were not that good, but we were the best team by far in in the National Hockey League. 2000, we had far more talent, but we still had the core that that won in '95. So we knew what it takes. But we had far more talent to to break open or or decide games when we needed with talent or goals or big big time plays. So those are two kind of two most obvious differences between '95 and, and 2000. It's the talent level. But when you have less talent, you have to be better. Not that we weren't a good team or playing for each other, but when you play a little differently sometimes when you have, you know, Patrick at his prime and Jason Arnott in his prime and Rafalski and Niedermeyers at their prime. You've got a little more firepower on all of, all throughout, sprinkled throughout the, you know, Mogilneys. And I mean, I can go on. Gomez, Scott Gomez was having a phenomenal year. Like, so you can you can get away with a little more, uh, relying a little more on the skill and, and talent. We couldn't do that in 95. It was all all work. Blue-collar work every day, every night, you know, week after week, month after month. Um, what happened in between, I think it was just a learning experience that, uh, you know, winning the cup, we go into the conference finals doing so well against the Rangers in 94 and winning the cup, it was like, well, we are, we are moving in the right direction. We didn't realize everybody else is, while we're playing in the late May and June and who knows, well, everybody else is rearming, getting ready, practicing, healing up. So we got caught a little bit in, I think, not improving enough. We always improve, but you have to improve a lot because the, what is it, 16 teams or how many teams don't make the playoffs, they're done in April. And now they have April, May, June. Why are you still playing? Why are you still struggling to get, they have time to, and every time the team gets out, they immediately go, you know, make trades and looking for free agents and draft picks and healing. And resting and training, and you missed that. And we didn't, we didn't, we individual as players, myself included, or whether it was the you know the leadership or the the uh, everybody else in the organization, we just didn't know how to. And I think you you saw it in two thousand going to finals in two thousand one. We were much better at it afterwards. So it's it's a learning experience. How do you sustain that? Not necessarily how do you get there, but how do you sustain it? Getting there is actually not as easy as sustaining it.
1: With that 95 team, which um, away arena was the one that you guys had the most fun playing in? Maybe outside of the obvious of the Rangers.
2: <laughs> in, uh, well, there's obviously, uh, t- as far as where, where we did well as a team and uh, where I where I like to play, I always like to play in uh, my own. Oh, I think it was still my old Montreal Forum. I don't I'm not sure yep. they they uh, they went to the new forum. They 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 can tell me all they want, what they, they call it this and they call it I call it the old forum and new forum. That's it. So what it you was, don't know
1: about me, Bobby, is I'm currently in Montreal and I'm from Montreal. So I hear I understand.
2: So <laughs> that that's the way it is for me. Um I always liked very in the medicine Square garden. One of the reasons why it was back then we before NHL had the ice guru then the ice was so horrendous there because it was a multi multi uh, event place. so a lot of times guys would be looking at the, their feet or at the stick were uh, seeing if the puck's there they gave me an opportunity to <laughs> to get the hits i needed or close the gap so uh, there's many reasons why i liked in the garden the energy is amazing obviously one of the reasons why i went to new york uh, at the time because i thought it was energy and it was shortly after 2001 and just it was a wonderful energy to play in the garden, you know. Uh, but ultimately, the best one was the forum. Uh, I, for some reason, I like to play in LA, in Tampa, not because of the warm weather. I'm not a warm weather guy, but I just it was it was pretty cool. Uh, anywhere, one yeah. <laughs> one place was not my favorite was the Nasaka and I don't think it's anybody's favorite. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I can understand why. Uh, that's for sure. It's an old barn. It's got great sight lines for broadcasting. But, uh, you know, we do have to move forward, I guess. You did sign with the Rangers and the money was fabulous. And God bless. Right. I I mean, a, it's a professional sport and you get paid to play. And if you can maximize, you should try to maximize your earnings. I, I know for fans, it's hard. I don't think media quite understands it. What's it like, though, for a player? Is it, is it quite that easy? It's just a business. This was the right thing. Or was there any moment when you moved over to the devil's greatest rival that it just, it just didn't feel right initially? Or, was there, or, or, or is that just what the fans think?
2: Go leaving the Devils was the uh, leaving the Devils was the last thing I wanted to do. We tried everything; it just didn't work out. And listen, sometimes it just it it was it's not all business. It's not all business until it is. And again, I I was not the type of player who you know like today young players get compensated for their potential. I always go their potential and all that. We did, we didn't we couldn't do that. We had to. I played for twelve years to become an free a agent, and I really wanted to stay with the Devils. It didn't work out. Again. I could easily say it was loosefall but I say give him credit because no matter what, he would stuck to his own personal salary cap or salary pay structure. And guess what? Twenty years later, or fifteen years later, everybody else is learning from him. They're like, "Oh, the guy was so ahead of his game, ahead of his time." And I understood that it was not. We are. Still, we still have a great relationship. I actually watch the Islanders play as much as I can because you know my my best boss ever works there, is there. So uh, it was not business until the really end because I really wanted to stay with the Devils, but I also understood that Luke couldn't do for me what, what because not because he didn't want to, but he, he was disciplined himself. I was disciplined as a player, focused. He was disciplined and focused as a general manager and team always came first. And it would kind of upset the apple cart so to sort of speak and he couldn't afford to do that. And he made the right decision. I th- I made the right decision as well for the long term, maybe in the short term, not. But in the long term, it's, it all worked out for everyone. Did you continue to live in New Jersey when you played for the Rangers? Yeah, yes, I did. One of the reasons why we stayed, because our daughter was in school and our horses were there. We were just very comfortable. And it was just an additional... You know, 10, 15, 20 minutes to the practice rink and then going to going to Midtown was I I would take a train there and then car back. And that was an awesome commute because surprisingly, I don't know if you want to know or not, but the people on the train were awesome. They were going to work just like I was (laughs) and they were very cordial. And uh, so it was a great experience as well. What were
1: the emotions when you did suit up against the um, Devils for the first time? Was it any different for you?
2: Uh, every time you, when you get traded, you sign with the, as a free agent, it's definitely not normal. I, I will admit it. It's quite different than playing in another team. But you know what? You have enough time to figure it out. And uh, But at the same time, we are humans and we have emotions and we have friends on the other team. And... But I believe that I've stayed professional and I did the best I could and, and um, yeah, it's, it's part of it. It's, uh, it's happening more often now because it's, it's when you, I have to agree, it's very much business now. From, from the day the player enters the NHL to the, his last day, it's all about business or the bottom line, which is not necessarily something I, I enjoy seeing, but it's a reality. Back then, that was reality, and I play against the, you know, the team I had tremendous success with. But again, life goes
0: on. Two strong personalities, Bobby Holik and Lou Lamorello. Did you guys ever butt heads? Uh,
2: I don't think we did. Well, I mean, you know, the butt heads that to butt heads for two of us would be a. Uh, a car crash at her miles an hour for other people. <laughs> so
0: we were kind of used to it, but no That's it, what I mean. I was just wondering, I mean, because very strong personalities uh and not afraid, not afraid to tell you where you stand.
2: Maybe, maybe misunderstanding or mis uh, just didn't see each other as point, didn't see eye to eye, but always respect. There's not a single time where I can recall where I didn't have respect for Lou. And uh And I hope uh, he feels the same way. But again, I can't control his thoughts. As I said, uh, misunderstanding, didn't see each other points, no problem, but uh, always respect.
1: I read that when you were in your playing days, on maybe off days or when you had some time when you were on the road, instead of sleeping like some of your teammates did, you would go and like experience and visit the cultural aspects of whatever city that you're in. So I'm wondering, I mean, it doesn't come to a surprise to me now having talked to you and understanding who you are and what really fuels you. But can you tell us maybe a couple of things that you saw
2: that were really impactful in some of those experiences? I, I would I would really have to uh, kind of recall and go through those almost 20 years where I've gone and uh, what I've seen and all that stuff. But there was yeah, it was it was much easier when I was younger because <laughs> when you as you get older, especially like mid 30s, you kind of like you know what I'm gonna take a nap even if we, yeah. we don't have a game, we have a day off. So you just. You just stay in a room and and read or uh, that was before everybody had the phone so I carried around a lot of uh, out-of-date newspaper and books and I would just go to the coffee shop that was the the towards the end of my career but throughout the first part it was a great opportunity because I was young and I had a lot of energy and enthusiasm seeing certain cities the first time or on a second time so um, even in a city like Buffalo, there was places to see, you know, President McKinley was sh- assassinated there. Uh, so those things are, uh, it, it, for me, it's interesting. It's not just because I became American. I, I love this country. It's my home, but I just like history and I like to know what's happening and, and where I'm at, where I'm at. So um, it's it's all good. Yeah, I was pretty busy. I kept myself pretty busy. You know, you just
1: mentioned, you know, being an American now. Um, I read that, I believe it was ninety November of 96 that you became an American citizen. And it happened in Newark, New Jersey, where you had your ceremony. How meaningful was that, to have that happen in that city in particular and in that, in that um, state? I was going to say province, but a state.
2: <laughs> First of all, are you Canadian? I am. I'm from Montreal. Okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, You excuse them. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I was in, in, uh, you know, I started applying shortly after I got here, then I had a green card and we got married. And uh, when we got traded, we had to move to New Jersey. So it happened November 4th, 1996. Yeah, you're correct. And um, it was, you know, Newark or or downtown, the federal building in downtown Newark is uh, quite a um, diverse diverse city. So I was uh, with. People from all walks of life, and we were sworn in, and it was great. And uh, before I got my passport, I just got a piece piece of paper saying that I I just have been naturalized because getting a passport takes oh, at a time took a little. And our first trip to Canada, and then coming back to the states, the customs, uh, the U.S. Uh, custom and border officer, he's, he he looked at my paper, he's like, oh, just naturalized, the best one we have. <laughs> so, because it's a, it, it's by choice. So that's uh, uh, you know, kind of st- I have a lot of stories, even away from hockey. <laughs> why
0: why was it important for you to become a U.S. citizen? I know your wife is born here, but why was it important for you?
2: Because uh, I uh, I grew up in a I don't want to say it was a great great place to grow up. Czechoslovakia under communism was. Great place to grow up because as a kid, you don't know. But as you as you get older and you learn what your parents and grandparents and everybody around you had to sacrifice for you to have these opportunities, this was a beacon, oh, this is a beacon of freedom. I don't care, especially in today. I don't want to get into into politics or anything, but people have to realize this country has meant, has made more people free, not only in the United States, but around the world than any other country in the history of mankind. And it's one thing I don't want anybody to forget. And for me to honor it was to become your citizen if I'm gonna live here. And be American citizen with all the good and with all the bad. And um, yeah, people just forget because they've had it for so good that this country has has meant so much for people like me and my parents. Not that they live here, but their son and daughter ended up living here and pursuing their opportunities and their, their ch- you know chances in life and much different than it would be in Czechoslovakia under communism. You mentioned your sister. At what age did she go over to the United
1: States and what does she do in terms of pursuing her opportunities?
2: She was a tennis, she was a tennis, uh, pro, she, was a tennis uh, she was a professional tennis player at the time and it was uh, in her early twenties or maybe around 29, ah, maybe even before she was 20. Right. And, but there was. Uh, that was then, and uh, things have changed. And they moved back. Eventually, they live in my hometown, where, where my mom is at. But you know, again, she was taking the chance because this was a this was the beacon of freedom. This was the where if you're good at something, you work very hard. You can you can pursue it. Yes, people will continue will continue to create obstacles, but it's on their personal level. This as a country, this as an institution, is the greatest place in the history of mankind. for people to pursue their opportunities.
0: You know, you talk about life in, again, then Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic in separate country Slovakia. And I use Chico as a reference point a lot because when, I mean, he loves the Czech Republic. He goes back there often. He loves history. And he grew up in that time where even he in Canada didn't have a lot. Um, It was a harder time. And. He always reminds me, hey, Maddie, you know, if you hear a story, and I'm going to give you this story here in a second, Bobby, you might get a chuckle out of it. He said, you have to remember, if you came from Europe or you came from where I did, in relatively small Western Canada location, we didn't have a lot. You know, television was on delay. Fresh fruit was unknown. Like, so when we had a chance to make it, our eyes were open, and, and, and he, like you, has a great deal, of, became a US citizen as well, a great deal of respect for this country. But it leads me this, to the story. Zach Parisi and Travis Ajak both tell it, they were early in their devil's career, wide-eyed and young and looking around, and they saw you coming out of the locker room, eating an apple. Not only did you eat the apple, they will tell you, they watched you eat the core. And to this day, they tell that's, there we go. Oh, he's got one. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and, and Chico, when I, tell, when I told the that story, he goes, man, you don't understand. I don't know if Bobby grew up with fresh apples and you didn't have much. If you did where Bobby grew up, you made sure you ate everything. You wasted nothing. But Zach and Travis still talk about that in a respectful way. The man ate the whole apple. We never saw that happen.
2: Before. <laughs> yeah, um, I still do. I, I don't know why you would throw out the core you know uh but um it's i don't know i just maybe because where i came from and i'm i'm not i'm not uh uh high mighty here i'm not self-righteous at all but maybe maybe because the the people who raised me who were around me growing up you know they had it much harder much Mm -hmm. much harder and i i learned from them so the apple core is just a small story or small example but that's the way it is. You work hard, you do your best, and you appreciate what you get for it. You know, it's, uh, I am so grateful and thankful. And I tell my mom all the time, the way I was raised and and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, because life is a lot of fun in the United States of America when you, when you appreciate what you
0: got. Bobby, it's been great spending time with you. We'll, I'll, I'll leave it at this. When you look back at your time with the New Jersey Devils, What stands out? Uh,
2: Obviously, we had the success, but the success we had is because we were... The work together, you know, working for each other, working, uh, just doing stuff as a player that was not necessarily benefiting you, but it was benefiting the, the guy next to you. And then the guy next to you was doing it for the guy next to him and a full circle came around and somebody was putting you in a great position to score or make a pass or throw a pick. So you can, you can skate the puck out of the zone. You know, everybody talks about goals and highlight films, but you know, just a, just a good breakout was a happened because we did it for each other. We put players in position of to succeed. We We, when we gave them a pass, we gave it to them because they could do something with it, and it was just a culture of team first. And again, I I used that experience throughout my mentorships and and teaching and coaching. And um, there's so much that I've ex- we as a family experienced in New Jersey, especially when Dr. McMullen was the owner. It was such a wonderful. I get chills thinking about it because it was the best time to be a. It was a, definitely the best time to be a hockey player. No one, no, I firmly believe it, no one had had it better than we did.
0: What a beautiful way to end this uh, interview. Bobby, again, great spending time with you. It was good to see you and, and Renee at the uh, at the reunion. And uh, we wish you and Hannah, your daughter, the very best. And thanks for giving us so much of your time. Thank you. That was a blast. And Amanda, you said at the start when we did the Open about not being around for some of those times. And you've gotten to know those players as we've done reunions and what have you. but. I think you get a little sense of what Bobby Holik is all about as a human and as a player.
1: Uh, fascinating, Maddie. Honestly, the conversation to me. I think I was a little quieter than I am on other podcasts because he is just such a riveting speaker. And just the, the way he has approached life from day one and from going, you know, from Czechoslovakia over to the U.S. and how he embraced that and what it meant to him. Just absolutely fascinating, and I feel like we could, you know, do multiple podcast episodes with Bobby, and no one would ever get bored.
0: No, um, he always had something to say, and he always uh, he gave you long answers, thoughtful answers. So it was just great to be around him. You know, he spoke so lovingly of his dad Yaroslav, who was a player and a coach uh, back in what was then Czechoslovakia, and you know the the work that he or the work ethic that he and uh, Yaroslav's wife, Bobby's mom, uh, put into him. So it's nice that the son uh, remembers where he came from and gives tribute to mom and dad for all that he has accomplished because he accomplished an awful lot. And again, I mentioned it, three Devils have scored more than 200 goals. Travis Ajax getting close. Unfortunately, (laughs) the quick end to the season prevented him from hitting that number. But assuming everything goes well, he'll cross the 200-goal barrier. But it is Bobby Holik then John McClain, number two, and then Patrick Elish, of course, sitting at number one. So, you know, Bobby did more than just crash into the corner. He could score more than just the timely goal. He was, he was a great all around player.
1: So was he your go-to quote man as like, we sort of cultivate today, or was that not sort of the same thing?
0: No, no, he would be for sure. Uh, But, you know, he was such a straight shooter. Sometimes, quite frankly, you know, in the media, we just want, yeah, that team's tough to play and we're going to have to give 100% effort. You just give give me somebody different. Can't always go to the same guys. Uh, So Kenny Danico was always great for Mm -hmm. uh, a quote. Scott Stevens was quieter. He'd give you the answer, but wouldn't necessarily go very long. Uh, but Bobby was always terrific. Yeah. Bobby was always the guy you went to and Bobby was the guy that you went to a lot of times when the microphones were put away and the pens were put down and the writers would be there. It's not so much that it was off the record, but listen, we're done uh, working. Let's just talk because he had, he had, uh, insights and comments on everything that was going on in the world. Uh, So yeah, he was just, he was just great to be around, but he didn't suffer fools gladly as you can, as you can tell, Uh, you know, he expected you to come at him with a better question than this is a tough, right. It's going to be a tough night. He would be like, if he's
1: going to be prepared, you need to be equally as prepared.
0: Right. I mean, because there are
1: some people who go into locker rooms and just say like, you know, take me through that goal you scored. And look, I've fallen victim to asking that question too before, but it's, So long as you have something, you know, a conversation is to be had there, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it it is nice to catch up with him after all this time. It's great to see him and the rest of his mates at the reunion uh, not too long ago, and uh, boy, just uh, great to spend some time with Bobby League. And we'll have to do it again,
1: absolutely. And also, Maddie, it's great to spend time with you.
0: Okay, not just
1: our guests, you as well.
0: You're so kind. It's great uh, that we we've been able to do this throughout the pandemic and. I think we've done more now this way than we We did sitting in our studio at Prudential Center. So I am looking forward to getting back and seeing you and uh, Andrew McLean and uh, Blaine Sayers, all the people behind the scenes that helped to make this go, our our producers. So uh, someday, someday, but for now we will wrap things up on our Zoom podcast for Amanda C. Stein. I'm Matt Lachlan. Thank you as always for your company. It's greatly appreciated. Be well, be safe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye everyone.